Welcome to the Hindu Pali. My name is Radhika Santanam and I'm your host for today. Recently, Geet Wilders won the parliamentary elections in the Netherlands, a country known to generally avoid political extremism. In France, Marine Le Pen finished a close second in the 2022 presidential elections. In Italy, a party with neo-fascist origins is in power. And in Germany, the AFD, which has neo-Nazi roots, is the second most popular party. In Argentina, we have Javier Milei, who just won the elections. And in the U.S., early polls suggest that Donald Trump has a chance of returning to power in the U.S., In India, of course, we have a right-wing government in power, which is uh, widely expected to win a third term in 2024. It is because of these developments across the world that at the end of 2022, we're asking the question, is right-wing populism seeing a resurgence across the world? To discuss this question, I have two very distinguished guests with us today. The first is Professor Irfan Nuruddin from the Asian Studies Program from the School of Foreign Service at Georgia. University. And the second is Professor Rahul Mukherjee, head of the Department of Political Science, South Asia Institute, Heidelberg University. Thank you, professors, for taking time off during the holiday season and for joining us today. Uh, let us start the discussion with something quite basic. How would you define right-wing populism opposed to, say, left-wing populism? Uh, Professor Irfan, can we start with you? Yes, Radhika, thank you so much uh, for having me on. It's always a pleasure to share a platform with Professor Mukherjee. So populism most generally is you know, thought of as a political phenomenon in which a voice of the people, quite literally the populi, right, uh, uh, begins to argue that they are being kept from power by some elite forces or some non-representative, non-legitimate forces within society. So it's a broad spectrum of issues, but what it shares in uh, common is that there's a skepticism about sort of democratic institutions as a way in which the people's voice can be heard. And so you have actors, either individual politicians or political parties, typically surrounded by surrounding that individual po- politician saying that we are the true representative of the people, and that our voice has been denied in politics because of some shadowy cabal, right? I mean, elites, international forces, and often uh, veiled accusations that these are minority groups, etc. But what it's striking at is the legitimacy of the liberal democratic process in which elections lead to certain winners, and those winners get to rule Uh, for a period of time. The distinction between left-wing and right-wing, for me anyway, right, is sort of the roots of the delegitimation of the system. So left-wing populism of a a kind would often argue in a very Marxist tradition that the masses, right, the general public, uh, the working class, for instance, was being kept from from influencing public policy because the rich, the political elite, uh, dominated by capitalist interests, uh, were exerting undue influence on the system. The right-wing version of this can often sound quite similar, right? If you listen to Trumpian 
uh, rhetoric, there's a similar sort of hint of this, of, you know, the true people, the working American, the true American that's being kept out of power because you have some sort of coastal liberal economic elite that's denying them power. But the right-wing version that we're watching in the world right now has also a feature in which the there's a real the dominant strain is that of asking pretty powerful questions, right? I think pretty illegitimate questions, but nonetheless powerful questions that resonate with a lot of people about whether the liberal dem- democratic project of inclusion is legitimate, right? So the the target of a lot of this right-wing populism is about racial, religious minorities within society, right? And essentially a suggestion that these minority groups are not true citizens of the country. They're not loyal citizens of the country, and therefore their voices and politics are inherently illegitimate and need to be tamped down. So you get a lot of different forces coming together to create the moment in which we are. You have globalization, which I'm sure we'll touch on as the conversation evolves, that leads to a lot of governments being able to exploit a sense of economic insecurity, but blaming outsiders, right? It's the IMF, it's the people in Brussels, it's the people in Washington, D.C., They are undermining us, and us over here is the true people. But you also have a domestic version of that same conversation, which is appeasement in India, maybe of Muslims, of lower caste communities demanding better representation and better opportunities, that these people are the reason that your lives are not as good as they should be. And this sort of mix of economic appeals with identity appeals, I think, combines to form the version of right-wing populism we see today. But for me, just to conclude, the distinction between right-wing and left-wing, I think, is less meaningful in the current moment than is the focus on the anti-democratic nature of populism, which is ironic, because what populism means to do is really stand for the voice of the people, And in that sense, where it really resonates with a lot of people is this idea of majoritarianism, right? For the majority public, it's very hard sometimes to see why wouldn't the majority opinion be the legitimate opinion. After all, we are the most people. We can win an election. And I think this is one of those complex political ideas that I'm sure Rahul can explain better than I can, of how constitutional democracy really relies on checks and balances against outright majority rule, right? It's about protecting minority interests. That's what we think of as being the hallmark of a constitutional democracy. And it is that fundamental tension between majoritarian impulses and minoritarian constitutional checks and balances against majoritarian tyranny that we're really watching play out around the world today. Right. Thank you. That was uh, very clear. Uh, Dr. Professor Mukherjee, would you like to add to that? Do you agree with this? Yeah, yeah, I, I sort of almost entirely agree with it, but I will kind of elaborate a little more because uh, I, I do think that this phase of pop populism has a tremendous majoritarian ethno-nationalist favor. This majoritarian and ethno-nationalist flavor is actually uh, what might be a little bit different from what was left-wing populism in the past. And 
this in turn actually has very, very undermining impact on the nature of democratic institutions. So, for example, you know, it can be uh, a Muslim other to the Hindus. It can be a Tamil other to the Sinhalas. It can be a non-white other to the white people. And it can be a Muslim other to the Christians. So, this othering is something which is happening on an ethno-nationalist basis. And the manner in which this othering is happening is actually undermining democratic institutions. So if you look at the current issue of Pacific Affairs, I have a piece with my colleague, Dr. Sayyid Hossein Zarhani, where we argue that there has been a systematic decimation of public institutions in three ways. One is by just interpreting rules differently. The second is by changing rules incrementally. And the third is by completely, radically displacing rules, like in the case of the abrogation of Article 370. And this is not only happening to public institutions, it is also happening to civil society. And we argue that these three ways are just mechanisms. But the idea that is driving these mechanisms is Hindu majoritarianism. So I think I was able to belabor with the help of one concrete example what Irfan was trying to propose and I think very successfully proposed uh, in a conceptual format. Right. So what are the issues at the center of the trend broadly? Well, the issues that we have looked at, for example, are uh, if you're looking at attacks on public institutions, just look at the parliament, look at the Supreme Court. Now, of course, they are trying to change uh, rules defining who the how the election commission would be, uh, the chief election commissioner would be uh, chosen. Uh, but in many of these institutions, rules have not changed, but their behavior has changed subsequently. Uh, has changed uh, substantially. Uh, if you look at the case of electoral bonds, for example, you have an incremental change in rules which has a massive impact on election funding in favor of the ruling party. And in the case of abrogation of Article 370, it is a paradigm change in understanding Indian federalism. I'm sure your readers have heard uh, uh, Justice uh, Fali Nariman, Justice Madan Lokur, and Justice uh, Rohington Fali Nariman on this issue. If you're looking at attacks on civil society, then, you know, there are lynchings that are taking place. There is a media that has been compromised. A uh, whole lot of these things are actually happening without, without any change in rules. Uh, incrementally, the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act has been changed. Uh, incrementally, the Foreign Contributions Regulation Act has been changed, and all of these are actually having a major impact on civil society and non-governmental organizations. And now we will have to see what happens with the new uh, laws on the Criminal Procedure Court that have come, uh, to what extent that will be a radical departure from the past. Right. Uh Professor Nuruddin, so I think Professor Mukherjee spoke uh, largely in the context of India. Uh, do you think these 
issues are also uh, the same in the other countries that we've been talking about? Well, yes and no, right? I mean, so at the core of all of them, you have this common trend of ethno-nationalist identity-based grievances, right? A, a general sense that there are other people uh, both outside the country and within the country to blame for many of the ills that are going on. So they become less about policy debates, right? It's less about uh, the way you think we should deal with our debt problem or the way you think we should deal with our economic problems is different and reasonable people can disagree. And part of what a demo- democracy does is give different ideas a chance to come uh, into the policy domain and becomes more of an identity issue. Uh, the reason we have economic problems is because you, meaning some group within society, migrants, immigrants, um, religious minorities, racial minorities, have actually been undermining our country. It becomes a fifth column kind of idea. You are traitors, right? You cannot be trusted over here. So that's a common trend. But the particular issues really are different. And you know, part of it is because the systems we're talking about are quite different. So in your opening you link, you know, very powerfully trends occurring across very different types of countries. But what's happening in Germany and the Netherlands or in India is occurring in the context of well-established democratic systems with strong political parties. But what's happened, for instance, in Hungary or in Argentina is much more about systems in which the political parties themselves have become very weak, their personalist vehicles, what Javier Millet was able to do was essentially make himself the focus of that election. What Donald Trump is in the process of doing over the last eight years and continuing now is essentially taking a well-established political party, the Republican Party, and making it all about him. So this becomes much more about a test of loyalty to Trump than it does about a set of Republican values um, that are instantiated by the party. As a result, what we get are very different kinds of appeals being made, right? In Argentina, the powerful appeal over there is of a country whose economic crises have been so long-standing, right? I mean, it's a bit of a running joke that at any point in the last 40 years, you can replicate the same headlines about Argentina, currency going out of back, an economy that's in crisis, the IMF coming in, right? It's a pretty well-to-do country as in terms of GDP per capita, but with an economy that never really gets stable. And that sense of economic insecurity that you're permanently on a crisis allows someone like Maile to come and say, listen, everyone's let you down. And 40 years of austerity measures periodically by the IMF have made your lives terrible. So who are we blaming for all of this? We're blaming the elites, but we're also blaming the international economic system over here. For Orban in Hungary, it was about migrants and migration, but within the context of the European Union, where all of a sudden you have a powerful supranational organization, right, which most citizens might not understand exactly what they're doing, but becomes a very easy target for saying, listen, are you unhappy with your life? Well, the reason is because you got all these guys sitting in, you know, in Brussels, all these Western Europeans who look down on us, Central Europeans, right? It's not fair. We can blame them. But what's happening in the Netherlands, I would argue, like what's happening in India, is these are actors, or in France with Marine Le Pen, right? These are actors who have been around in the party system as pretty fringe elements 
for a long time. Right. Right. I mean, the BJP has been contesting elections in India for the last 45 years. And it's not that it's suddenly come into play in the last 10 years. It has been an actor. It has got a strong social, uh, societal force through the Sangh Parivar in the same way that the you know, the National Front in France has been around for a long time. So the question over there is that why does suddenly these parties, right, which were always part of the broader system, but were not able to get large votes, were not able to form sort of stable governments at the center, why do they suddenly become so powerful? And part that question is both about the grievances that fuel voter support for their appeals, but also the collapse of the center parties, right? The opposition parties, as we might call them in India. And so some of this question is about why is it that, you know, the dominant center in these countries just has really failed to resonate increasingly with the voting public? Why does the voting public not see um, the traditional parties, if you would, as being viable alternatives. And I think that then becomes much more about understanding the nature of electoral politics in these countries and thinking very honestly about which groups are feeling like they are not being heard. Uh, Are those concerns legitimate? Or do we get a general tacking to the right as all of a sudden lots and lots of actors are saying, listen, the only way in which we can uh, really compete is we ourselves have to become a little more right-wing, right? We have to move to the right now for this. And this leads to an emboldening maybe of right-wing parties, but also a disillusionment of the left-wing. So at the most, you know, in this, for the sake of provocation and maybe for the sake of making the conversation a little more interesting, what we might be seeing, what we are seeing, I would argue, is really a blowing up of traditional party systems that have largely been pretty intact for the la- for most of the post World War II era, especially in Western Europe, but also uh, in other parts of the world, and I think we don't know yet what will replace that, right? Or whether this is just a blip, and then eventually those more centre-left parties will re- return, right? Uh, some of that will depend on how well these uh, right-wing parties do while they are in power. Do they actually get to uh, put their plans in place so that citizens say, "Hey, this worked. We like you. We'll keep you around." Or do they say, hey, that was a mistake and we're going to go back to the alternative? But I think we cannot underestimate the degree to which part of the story is that traditional parties have failed to capture the imagination. And you didn't mention this in your opening, but the United Kingdom, England, is an interesting case in this, right? It's not a right-wing populism. You've got the Tories and the Labour Party uh, uh, really in a pretty traditional competition. But if you think about the performance of the Tories over the last 10 years, it has been crisis after crisis after crisis, just, you know, embarrassment, prime ministers lasting, you know, ridiculously short amounts of time, very few prime ministers able to actually muster any sort of parliamentary record. And yet, the Labour Party doesn't seem like anyone thinks that it's truly going to be a alternative, right? I mean, there's just a big question as to whether or not Keir Starmer and the Labour Party can actually take advantage of the fact that the Tories have just been a mess for a while. So that is as much some of the question I think that we should be tackling, right? Why, if there is all of this discontent over the right-wing governments that have come around around the world, has the left not been able to capture power again? Hmm. 
Uh, Professor Mukherjee, do you agree with that rather provocative statement that the traditional parties have largely failed? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think this is uh, this is actually also a question of resilience, and uh, in the in the December issue of the Jan Journal of Democracy, uh, there will be a piece called "How Not to Stop India's Authoritarian Slide," based on some research that we have done on resilience in India, and the resilience that we see is not just in India, but we also found that in Guatemala, Arevalo recently was able to beat uh, Giametti. Uh, in the past, you know, the Democratic Unity Roundtable in Venezuela, famously called the MUD, was able to resurrect itself between 2008 and 15. And most recently, in the states of Karnataka and Telangana, the Congress Party was able to win elections even though it handsomely lost in Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, and Chhattisgarh. So a uh, couple of things come out of uh, an empirical understanding of these situations. One is that when levels of repression are what scholars call at an intermediate level, there is some chance of bouncing back. Uh, because at very low levels of repression, uh, it seems that uh, center and center-left parties in the same way as Irfan has uh, mentioned, uh, which had become lazy, which had not organized themselves, kind of lose out. On the other extreme, you have high levels of repression, which would be characteristic of Orban's Hungary and Erdogan's Turkey, where again, you know, it seems that the scope for the democratic opposition is very remote. But at intermediate levels, like the ones that I just described, uh, there is the possibility that when you have such high levels of repression across the board, uh, even though uh, incumbents have enormous advantages, uh, there may be possibilities for uh, a resurrection or a bouncing back. And our preliminary research suggests that uh, you need three things. You need actually to have a strong democratic leader. You need a clear message, which has to be both appealing in terms of its difference of narrative as being secular and not ethno-nationalist, and perhaps attending to welfare goals that require immediate attention. And in the case of India, we find, especially in the cases of Telangana and Karnataka, that such leadership was actually able to mobilize a large part of civil society, which need not necessarily belong to the Congress party. But, you know, when it decided that the BJP has to be beaten up, then, you know, it was able to counteract very powerful, both in terms of numbers and in terms of financial power, both the BJP as well as its uh, social arm, which is probably one of the largest in the world, the Sang, to take on the democratic opposition. But I agree with Irfan that it is not very clear whether uh, this bouncing back will become something that will come to stay. Uh, I think this is an open question. I do think the democratic possibilities are not completely dead yet, though. Right. So... 
actually, I was going to ask something else, but because you spoke of resilience, uh, I have another question. So, you know, we can conversely argue that there are countries such as uh, Britain, for instance, uh, or uh, Chile, uh, and Latin America, where the left is in power. So do you think there is a resurgence of this right-wing populism or is it just highly exaggerated because it tends to happen more in Europe and the US and countries which are, you know, the Western world and parts of Asia, of course? I can jump in over there. So that's a really good question. One of the dangers of any political commentary is that we have a present, uh, presentist bias, right? I mean, we live in the moment and we, uh, maybe it's human nature that we think that the moment that we live in is uh, unique. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, you know, the longer perspective suggests that history repeats itself. There have been moments in the past uh, of democratic crisis. Uh, if you go back and read the political science scholarship about Latin America, right in the 19th 70s, a large part of this was really about the collapse of a lot of the uh, democratic systems and the rise of what scholars call bureaucratic authoritarianism, a real era of dictatorship in the 1980s, from which we once again emerged. Um, if you know, in the U.S., for as much as we agonize about the current moment of uh, of Trump, um, the truth is that the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House are more diverse. Uh, then at any point in American history, uh, you do have a black woman as vice president, kind of unprecedented, uh, truly a historical moment in that record. And even on the Republican side, uh, probably the only real contender to uh, Trump and on the Republican side is Nikki Haley, right? A, a woman of uh, South Asian heritage, uh, for instance. So maybe it's worth tempering some of that more feeling of real uh, crisis for recognizing that we have these different moments. But this is where maybe something I said in the opening comes back. I think for as much as we can point to particular election victories, right, where the left is able to put together a compelling message and counter what might appear to be a really sort of a juggernaut on the part of the right, what we have, I think, is a broader crisis of governance in a lot of developing countries and maybe even a lot of developed countries. Um, and what do, I, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is a sense that government is not really a source of solutions um, for a lot of the kind of day-to-day problems that people have, but it's in many ways sort of incidental to that, right? And uh, what do I mean by that? In many developing countries, you have governments that simply don't have an effective tax base from which they can spend money on the kinds of things that citizens see on a daily basis, right? I mean, most work of government isn't tackling social issues. The work of government is largely spending money, spending tax revenues on building better roads and building better highways and building, you know, clean water facilities and building health facilities. Um, All of that takes a lot of resources. And globalization and generally, I would say, you know, corruption and bureaucratic ineffectiveness means that many developing countries simply lack the fiscal space to do this. In 2008, Pradeep Chibber at the University of California, Berkeley, and I wrote a paper that was published in Comparative Political Studies showing that Indian states that have less fiscal space experience higher electoral volatility and higher rates of anti-incumbency. And with another call, colleague of mine, 
Thomas Flores of George Mason University. Uh, he, Tom and I wrote a book in 2016 called Elections and Hard Times. And we show this globally, that countries that have less fiscal space have much worse democratic resilience, much worse democratic records. I mean, this is a very structural political economy explanation. It's not as exciting, not as sexy as sort of talking about ethno-nationalism and, you know, anti-immigrant sort of stuff, but really recognizing that when governments lack fiscal resources with which to uh, effectively conduct public policy, they resort to other ways of winning elections, right? So if you can build roads and highways and airports and all that other stuff, then you run on your policy record. But if you can't do that, you have to find another way in which to mobilize the population. And the ways in which we argue governments do that is often making identity appeals. We start talking all the time about reservations and reservation policies. We talk about, you know, not whether we can build more universities, but who gets to go to the universities that we currently have. I realize that's overly simplifying uh, very complicated issues. But I think that distinction between what do citizens want from their governments and do they actually think the governments can deliver that? If we have a crisis of governance, if we no longer think that government is a source of solutions, but really just something that's a problem, right? Something to be demonized, you get a Trump uh, in, for whom his, when he came to power in 2016, the legacy of Trump over four years, right? Beyond sort of, you know, a lot of embarrassment on the world stage was really a devastation of the American federal bureaucracy, large number of positions that were not filled, an exodus of long-standing career civil servants who did not want to serve under him, right? And that leaves a much longer legacy. Uh, this has happened in other parts of the world. Uh, Rahul correctly talked about the damage being done to public institutions in India, and this precedes the Modi administration. I would argue many governments have been, you know, all the way back to Indira, have been uh, guilty of sort of using the public bureaucracy not as being professional actors to be respected and given autonomy, but really as, you know, vassals of the government and go do our job, we put our people in charge and stuff. So I think we have a much more complicated and in some ways maybe a more pessimistic story, right? At the end of the day, none of these right-wing populists are immortal. They will move on. There will be successes. Their successes won't be the same personalities that they were and will have a harder time building personalistic coalitions. But the legacy of a lot of the moment we're living in is maybe much weaker states. And when states become weak, then we have legitimate um, legitimacy crises about governance. And I think what we might be experiencing is a real lack of trust in the act of governance and therefore in the act of democracy. And I think we really want to ask that question about how do we rebuild faith that elections matter because we are electing people to government and government matters because we see the daily work of government and we think we benefit from it. Mm. Uh, that's, a, again, kind of boring, uh, staid kind of way of answering these more provocative questions. But I don't think we want to lose sight of the forest for the trees. Of course. Uh, Professor Mukherjee, so uh, building on what uh, Professor Muridin said about uh, poor governance and what you had earlier said about the collapse of institutions, uh, you gave the exam you gave several examples from India. Why do you think this is happening? How did we reach this point? Why is there such a growing distrust of the state? 
and of democracy itself well i i on this point i kind of uh, agree in many respects with uh, what irfan mentioned but i do want to put uh, my finger on ideology and i think uh, people are beginning to understand that ideology matters and uh, i i'm not saying that uh, governance problems are not a problem and of course the karnataka government was dethroned also because of its anti incumbency and we also know that in rajasthan uh, the governance situation was not that bad but uh, the hindu nationalists won and uh, i have an opinion in the journal of democracy that point gives simple reasons about uh, why there were three losses and sort of two victories for the congress party uh, but uh, this is not to underestimate the importance of uh, governance uh, also of economic crises as we have seen producing results in argentina uh, but i think we do have to understand that uh, in many countries and especially in the case of india there was uh, there was really no great uh, economic crisis as in many other countries uh, uh, but there's been a steady ideological build up around a certain idea of ethno nationalism which has come to assume much greater power both in the social and the political space and i believe that the two spaces are very very connected and of course they take advantage of the variables that irfan just mentioned but i do think uh that uh, the ideological battle is a very important one i mean even and of course the ideological battle has to be also fought with governance so for example if you read jack snyder's uh, recent book human rights for pragmatists uh you will find that even people like jack are saying that uh, john ruggie's embedded liberal idea which was a far more social democratic context of producing a capitalist system uh, is very very important for preserving human rights so it's not to uh, it's not to undermine the importance of uh, welfare and governance but uh, but it is also to underline the importance of ethno nationalism as an idea which takes the help of many different types of variables like hindu muslim so you're saying that ethno nationalism nationalism is not necessarily linked to income inequality uh it it is not necessarily linked to income inequality yes i think it it can be linked to income inequality and governance uh, scenarios but not necessarily yeah i think we have to I, understand I this yeah sorry i agree completely with rahul on this one look ideology is critical because the stories we tell ourselves about the countries we live in right i mean the myths if we would of nationalism uh a large part of how we then think about what's legitimate and who's a legitimate member of the country my last book in 2022 was about christian nationalism in the united states and you know the the founding myth of the united states is one that can be told in many different ways that of you know chosen nation with a special covenant with god um obama used that um in a very long standing traditional uh, of in american politics as basically um, saying we have a mission to go out and be 
better angels, right? We got to go out and sort of help people. Use it as a justification for uh, Obamacare, for a particular notion of how America should play in the world. But that same ideology can also be was also twisted by the so-called Christian nationalists to say America is a nation for Christians, right? And that anyone else over here lives either on our fo- is here on our forbearance or should not be here. Uh, entirely. So if you think in the Indian context, what are those founding myths? What are those founding stories we tell ourselves? And a large one, the one I grew up with, uh, with in, you know, in Bombay when I was being raised in the 1970s and 80s, was that of India as a secular democratic republic. But if you think about the word secular in the modern Indian context, it has almost become a punchline to a joke. Right, I mean, secular, pseudo-secular, uh, all sorts of ways in which the confluence of both right-wing uh, activists, right, uh, intelligentsia, but also the media has picked up all of that. But a world in which the basic notion of secularism as a legitimate organizing principle for a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilinguistic society like India um, is seen as not something that is almost sacred, but in fact seen as something that is, you know, a punchline to a joke, is not seen as something that was used to demean and to keep the majority down, is a very dangerous one. So it is actually ideological, and that ideological work of undermining these ideas, I think, is a very, very critical thing that we have to pay attention to over here. So the South and the North in India is maybe the one big... um, opportunity for us to understand what actually is going on. Why is it that, you know, 10 years of uh, majority rule in Delhi has still struggled to make genuine inroads in the South in terms of state elections, right? Um, Is that about the resonance of the ideology? Is it about the linguistic part of it? Is it about the different nature of the political parties that you have? But what it doesn't have is about inequality. So I think, just to get finally, Radhika, to your last question, I think if we think seriously about economic inequality, income inequality, as being a determinant of right-wing populism, we have to ask the question about why is it that that appeal only is to the majority community, right? In India, Muslims and Dalits are the poorest members of Indian society. If economic insecurity and economic inequality was driving right-wing attitudes, those are the groups that should be most vulnerable and susceptible to that ideology. But they're not, right? In the United States, African Americans and first-generation migrants, immigrants um, are among the most economically disadvantaged in the society. But they're not the ones falling, uh, you know, in line with the Trumpian ideology. Uh, Trump himself is very, very wealthy, and so are many of the capitalist supporters of it. So I think economic ideology and economic insecurity can link in that we have to tell stories, and one of the stories that is effectively told by right-wing populists to disaffected members of majority groups is that the reason their lives are not better is because of these minority uh, groups who are painted as outsiders, who are painted as intruders, right? And that becomes, that's ideological. So when Mr. Modi talks about seven, 600 years of colonialism, right, and India emerging from 600 years of external subjugation, that's a really 
I think, dangerous claim to allow to go unchallenged because what he makes then is the entire Mughal Empire and that era of Indian history becomes that of outside intervention, outside colonialism, right? Which is very contrary to the dominant way in which we have typically understood Indian history. That is an ideological argument. But as that becomes unchallenged, as it becomes sort of soaked up into the general rhetoric that society uses, then we end up with this really powerful ideology that undermines the founding stories of India. It tells a different story. And that different story has a different place for different communities in the society. And we're seeing that around the world as well, some much more organized. The RSS vision of Hindutva is a very well-developed ideological project, right? Over almost 100 years old uh, plus. Uh, that is not the same in Argentina, right? Uh, Mele doesn't have a grand story of Argentine society. That is much more what we think of as being right-wing populist, taking advantage of economic crisis, coming and blaming international actors and saying, hey, I can help you over here. And people being so disillusioned with the existing political parties that they say, okay, we'll give this guy a chance. Maybe he can solve it because nobody else has. Now, but in Orban's Hungary, Erdogan's Turkey, right, Putin's Russia, uh, and maybe, you know, Modi's India, you have a different version of it in which we're actually hearing the articulation of a very different notion of what these countries mean and should mean. And that, I think, has very long, in some ways, that's maybe in the long run much more dangerous than uh, a melee in Argentina who might do some damage uh, in a current term, but is unlikely to be relevant in 10 years or in 20 years. Right. So I think both of you largely argue that uh, the stories that these leaders about ourselves, about our communities, about our nations, uh, is one of the reasons for this uh, mass basis of right-wing populism? I would just underline what Irfan mentioned, uh, because uh, I think we wholeheartedly agree with both, and I'm, I'm delighted to learn this, uh, uh, that we actually wholeheartedly agree. And the only, the only sort of punchline I would add is that, uh, you know, there was the conception of a Hindu. Now it is being converted into Hindutva. And so once the Hindu becomes Hindutva, and if Hindutva becomes the nation, then Irfan, whatever he just described, begins to happen. And this, I think, is a very disruptive animal uh, in the making of uh, a very different kind of a nation that India is. It's not like the German nation. It's not like the French nation. Uh, it is something that Mohandas Gandhi, you know, described as a civilization, and people uh, look down on it, and he gave his life to protect it. Uh, so, 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 I, I, I completely and wholeheartedly endorse uh, what uh, Irfan has just described. Right. So, I'm just going to ask. Two last questions because I already feel like I've been taking a lot of your time. Um, one is so, in the broader context, um, you know, globally, do you think that rise uh, right wing populism is a disruptive force threatening the international order, or because, well, it's populist, is it the answer to all these problems that we've been talking about? Yeah, it, it's certainly a very very disruptive force and. Uh this disruptive force has become global and transnational as well. 
So, you know, the European Union could not check uh, Orban from becoming what he did become or from Erdogan to become what he did become. And on the other hand, there are uh, countries like Putin's Russia and Xi Jinping's China, uh, especially Xi Jinping's China, which is becoming, uh, you know, economically quite strong. And this disruptive force can also become a global player at a multilateral level, uh, which uh, doesn't help the global context for democratic resurgence. So we know that democratic resurgence had a global context, uh, and that was, uh, to some extent, the end of the Cold War. And uh, the kinds of incentives that came with becoming a democracy and now with uh, the rise of uh, non-democratic countries and cooperation among them, uh, it, it, it might actually become a bigger disruptive force. Uh, and I do feel that the answers to this disruption, however, lie largely uh, in domestic politics and in uh, countering the narrative that Irfan was just talking about. Right. Professor I agree with Rahul. Uh, the sources of this are democratic, but as he correctly said, we have a world in which the democratic backsliding states, right? I mean, those that were, in the, say, in the late 1990s on the path to democracy and now have taken significant steps back, Hungary and Turkey, uh, the poster children for this, are... Uh, you know, much more aggressive on the international stage of essentially asking difficult, challenging questions about the liberal international order that we have taken for granted. And especially in the 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, seen no real intellectual uh, challenge to. So that by the 2000s, and definitely by the 2010s, the notion that democracy was going to be inevitable uh, around the world just has no longer even seen as credible, right? Uh, in fact, now we're asking a question about whether or not uh, non-democracy or at least, you know, challenges to, let's call it, uh, liberal democracy in the form of authoritarian democracy, hybrid democracy, uh, electoral autocracies, all these labels that we have come up to uh, is going to be the norm. Yes, you have elections, but those elections largely bring back to power, you know, very powerful leaders who have dominated the civil society space, who have undermined oppositions through legal man maneuverings, right? The age of the old-fashioned dictator that did a coup and came to power and executed all his opposition, that may be in the past, right? What we have now is leaders that are completely following the letter of the law, right? But they use, as Rahul enumerated earlier, they, no use, yes. they use a whole bunch of different sort of legal bureaucratic things that most citizens don't even know about, right? But those rules have really tremendous influences on whether or not there can be a credible opposition, uh, what kind of debates can be had, what kind of criticisms can be launched, etc. So the question right now is, is that now the new norm, right? Is that what we're going to have going forward? And if that's what we're going to go have forward, that changes the way the world talks about democracy, about what it means to support a democratic movement in a country that's trying to form a democracy. How do we challenge all of this? And just one other thing I would say is that part of the blame, if you would, for the current state of affairs is that the 
U.S. in particular itself has squandered any legitimacy it might have had claim to, right? I mean, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years, especially the one in Iraq, which was waged under false pretenses, under lies, uh, right? But in the name of democracy, really, I think, destroyed America's credibility as being a genuine, you know, supporter of democratic values around the world. And, you know, some would argue that it never had any credibility. Others would argue that, that that's, you know, being too harsh. But the truth is that we just don't have uh, a United States that is out there saying we are the champions of democracy. In fact, the concerns about China and the geopolitical realities of that have really meant that America has stepped back from pushing democracy around the world and is really focused on the anti-China, um, right, and China balancing. And so, yes, the international order, I think, of the next 10 to 15 years is really being reshaped and remade. And the biggest change, I think, is that democracy as a value that organizes that international order is receding. And we're going to have to think about what replaces uh, that and whether and what the implications are for domestic politics around the world. Right. Okay, I think I've really yeah. overshot time, so I'm just going to end the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I should have this is the danger of the danger of inviting two professors, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the danger of inviting two two friends who have met after a long time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, is that true, so? I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, a, a true palais, as it were. So yes. Yeah, <laughs>